Pastor John began the third commandment last week of our sermon series through the Ten Commandments. Uh, this morning you will see uh, in your sermon notes at the top, we have put the question and answer 113 from the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession. If you're wondering how in the world we could preach more than one sermon on this particular commandment, you can see the myriad of ways that we can violate this commandment. Before we read God's word together, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to rightly understand your word as it is read and proclaimed. And use it to accomplish in us all your holy will. To put to death within us all that is not of you. and To lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the sake of your great name. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read together from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, the Ten Commandments. Please join with me as we read together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not Him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus 
Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we continue looking at this third commandment concerning the name of the Lord, I think it's helpful to begin by being reminded that as Pastor John said last week, the name of God represents his person, his power, and his presence. You see, God's name is much more than a name as we think of a name. For us, a name is simply a label. The Hebrews, though, understood a name to be inseparable from the person because they understood a name to be something you are, not just something you have. God's name, then, is referring to the essence of his divine being and represents his whole identity, his whole reputation is tied up in his name. And this is what Pastor John was explaining in a sermon last week. And if we stop and think about this truth, this is a remarkable thing that God has done in revealing his name to us. It is a gracious act of condescension to us that we might truly know him. But in having his name, we might also misuse his name. And if his name is inseparable from his being, to dishonor God's name, to profane it in any way is to denigrate his holiness, to treat him as worthless, to treat the Holy One as common and secular. Therefore, treating God's name irreverently is a very, very serious thing indeed. And God says that he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So last week, Pastor John gave several ways in which we might be careful not to violate this third commandment. And I encourage you to listen to his sermon online on our website or through the podcast if you haven't yet. But he discussed using God's name flippantly, casually, thoughtlessly, having God's name on our tongues, but not having reverent awe for his infinite holiness in our hearts. This can be done from using God's name as a curse word to, as Pastor John mentioned, telling cutesy stories and jokes about God. To my knowledge, Pastor John didn't mention this last week, so I'm going to do it this morning. Christians, we need to banish phrases like OMG from our vocabulary. It reveals a total irreverence to God that should never be on the lips or fingertips of someone who professes the name of Jesus Christ. Pastor John also discussed this commandment's relation to promises and oaths. We shouldn't swear by God's name and then fail to uphold our promises. And dearly beloved, I realize that talk is very, very cheap these days, and so no one really expects much when someone makes a promise, do they? But let that not be us, though. We are people of the truth as those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is the truth. It is an affront to God when we promise by his name and don't take our promise seriously. It means that we don't take God seriously. Finally, Pastor John asserted that we violate the third commandment by not bearing the name of Christ in a worthy manner. We have been baptized into the name of the triune God, and so a life not consistent with our baptismal identity is dishonoring the very name of God. Now, I want to explore this morning three other ways in which we might transgress the third commandment. 
And these three might not be as obvious, but they are nonetheless extremely important. But before we discuss these three, I want to push a little deeper into this idea from last week about being careful to live in a way that is consistent with our Christian identity. And I want to do this by actually taking a step back and thinking about one of the functions of the Ten Commandments in general. So hang with me for a moment. This has a point. Think with me about the context of Exodus 20. Israel has just been brought out of the land of Egypt from bondage in the land of Egypt and was on the way to the land that God had promised them. And en route, during this very formative time in the wilderness, God gives these commandments. I think it's helpful to remember that God gave Israel the commandments as a means by which to tell them how they were to live as his people. As a people who were, by his grace, chosen by him, claimed by him, and set apart from the other nations to live for him. The scripture tells us that God brought Israel out of Egypt, not simply for their sake, that they might be freed from oppression, but that he might receive glory through his redemptive work. That through Israel, through their redemption and reliance on him, through their worship and service to him, his power and greatness and might might be known among the nations that he might be realized and worshiped as the one true living God, majestic in holiness, whose name is to be feared and honored by all. So as Psalm 106 states, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And so in freeing them and making them his own possession, God called people the people of Israel, to live as his people, to demonstrate to the world that they belong to him by being holy as he is holy. Again, this in the context, in the context of the Exodus is what the Ten Commandments are about. The Ten Commandments serve as a guide for right living by which his people are set apart from the rest of the world and point to who God is and are recognized as distinct among the nations. So in Leviticus, God tells his people through Moses, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. In obeying the law, God's people can be seen by others to be embodying God's righteousness and goodness and love and show to the world who God is and what his moral demands are for humanity. Now, what might be lost on us today is just how countercultural these commandments were in their original context. Perhaps this is because so many of the commandments are recognized as universally true by most people today, God-fearing or not. Murder, for instance, is recognized as morally wrong by most religions and cultures. But it was a weird thing for Israel to devote themselves to one God and reject worshiping other gods, to refuse to bow down to idols. It's a weird thing for them to honor a Sabbath day. Their oddness, though, was essential to their faithfulness to the covenant. Their oddness was essential to their faithfulness to the covenant. It revealed them to be God's people. And the same is true for us today as God's new covenant people. 
We too are called to be holy as God is holy, to provide a living demonstration that we belong to the family of God. As one Christian theologian wrote, from a Christian point of view, the world needs the church not to help the world run more smoothly or to make the world a better and safer place for Christians to live. Rather, the world needs a church because without the church, the world does not know who it is. The only way for the world to know it's being redeemed is for the church to point to the Redeemer by being a redeemed people. The way for the world to know that it needs redeeming, that it is broken and fallen, is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. Unfortunately, the church in America has busied herself with accommodating to the world around her an attempt to be relevant and attractive. And the result is that the church compromised her witness. This happens when she because she is concerned with sounding arrogant, fails to stand firm in the truth that there is but one God and there is but one way to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Or when she becomes timid in calling sin what it is because sinners might be offended. Or when the liturgy of her worship is more concerned with conforming people's self-esteem in preferences than giving God the glory that is due to him. Or when she busies herself with buying into the culture's ideology of self-actualization and begins believing that self-love is essential for healthy living, rather than heeding Scripture's call for self-denial, living in humble service to others. These are just some of the ways in which the church forgets that her call, first and foremost, is to be faithful to God, not attractive to the world. The Ten Commandments have a response to each of these temptations, but it means that the church is going to be seen as weird in the eyes of the world. It's a weird thing that we reject worshiping the gods of this world, money and power and fame and social acceptability and a life of leisure and pleasure. It's a weird thing for us to refuse to bow before these idols. It's a weird thing for us who honor the Sabbath day and refuse to participate in what the world has labeled the weekend. It's a weird thing for us to hold to a sexual ethic and to not take adultery lightly. Now, let me draw all of this together for you. At the heart of the third commandment is a concern for God's name to be honored and revered and adored and feared and praised and glorified by us, in us, and through us as those who claim his name by professing to be claimed by him in Jesus Christ. His name will either be exalted by us in our thoughts and meditation, in our words and in our actions, or his name will be profaned by us. We will either present a faithful witness to his holiness, his goodness and his power and his love, or we will reveal that he means nothing to us. Now, therefore, I want to suggest that these three areas that I'm about to discuss are areas that we need to exercise caution in to not violate the third commandment and that they're critical in setting a foundation for presenting a faithful witness. I really believe that these three areas, how we handle them, will reveal our posture of our hearts toward God and set a course for whether God's name will be honored by us or not. So if you're taking notes, here's 
point number one, if you haven't already written a point number one. The first is how we handle God's word, how we handle God's word. Westminster Larger Catechism states that the third commandment is violated by misinterpreting or misapplying God's word or perverting all or part of its meaning in any way, as well as by blasphemous mockery of his word. When God's word, by which God has chosen to reveal himself, is profaned, God is dishonored. Now, there are obvious times when people are openly mocking God's holy word. Just this past week, I witnessed someone refer to the Bible as in the ignorant thoughts of goat herders from 2,000 years ago. This is a clear mockery of God's word, and there is a growing contempt for God's word in our culture. But clear mockery is not the only way Scripture is handled carelessly. We should remember here that Scripture itself shows us that you can actually have Scripture on your lips without holding a reverent view of God in your hearts. Just because Scripture is quoted does not mean it is quoted correctly. So we see this in Genesis 3 when we find God's Word, although a twisted version of it, on the lips of the serpent. His intention is not to present God as he is, but to misrepresent God. We find it again in the desert when Jesus is tempted. Again, we have the word of God on the lips of the evil one. Is scripture on his lips pleasing and honoring to God? No, of course not. Satan is not reciting scripture with a reverence toward God, nor is he reciting scripture to accurately portray God's character. God's word on Satan's lips becomes blasphemy. In these cases, Scripture is used to profane God's name. Therefore, we must be very careful with how we approach Scripture. The Scripture being used inappropriately in a way that dishonors the name of God can be as blatant as the individual who responds to the mention of any behavior as sinful by saying, Judge not, lest ye be judged, or let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. Someone who is using Scripture in this way probably does not have in mind that Scripture is useful for reproof and correction, but rather is simply trying to use Scripture to excuse sinful behavior. Anyone using these verses in what is now such a cliched manner reveals not only that he or she knows very little about Scripture, but also reveals that he or she knows little to nothing about the holiness of God. But twisting God's Word might not be that blatant. It also happens when God's word is used as nothing more than a self-help manual to live your best life now. When the whole counsel of God is neglected or ignored and only certain uplifting passages get used. When passages get used out of context to say something they really don't say. Therefore, dearly beloved, we need to be careful about how we approach the Bible. We should be seeking to know Scripture in its fullness if we truly desire to know God in His fullness. So let me ask you, how how do you do with Scripture? How do you come to Scripture? Do you come to Scripture with a desire to seek after the Lord, to grow in intimacy and knowledge, to gain a deeper sense of who God is? Do you come with a humility, submitting yourself to Him, knowing that his will for you is to grow into greater likeness of his son. And that this 
often requires a very painful process of dying to our old self, the self that was put to death on the cross of Christ. Do you treasure his word? Or do you flip through the Bible haphazardly looking for an encouraging word for the day, ignoring any passages that might convict you of your sin? Do you read it as nothing more than good literature? Dearly beloved, when we approach God's word, we should be doing so with a reverence toward the holiness of God and with an attitude of humility toward God. So likewise, we need to also be careful about the teachers and preachers we read and listen to. God's word is not handled equally by all. God's word on the pen or in the mouth of a wealth, health, and prosperity preacher is not the same as God's word on the pen or in the mouth of, say, someone from Ligonier Ministries. And I don't mean this to sound condescending or arrogant, but I cringe when I hear and see what some self-professed evangelicals are using for daily devotions. They think that they're feasting on God's word. What they're really doing is eating spiritual garbage that's clogging their spiritual arteries. They think that they're drinking from God's living water and they are really ingesting poison. They think that they're getting a daily dose of truth because whatever they're reading is quoting God's word, but they're really infecting their minds and hearts with blasphemy. Paul tells Timothy that he should strive to present himself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. We should seek to be those who rightly handle the word of truth and to put ourselves under the teaching of workers approved by God. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Second, and not unrelated to the careful handling of God's word, we need to be careful about our theology. This is point number two. We need to be careful about our theology. The Westminster Larger Catechism states that supporting false doctrines is a violation of the third commandment. It's a violation because theology is very simply what we think and what we say about God. If we are thinking and saying wrong things, God is profaned and his name is dishonored. Now, you might say, I'm not a theologian. I didn't go to school to learn theology. But you would be amazed at how many people I've run into in airports and other places who, when they find out I'm a pastor, proceed to tell me all of their thoughts about God, even after they've told me that they're not even a Christian. (laughs) Friends, we are all theologians. We all have thoughts on God, whether we believe in God or not. The question is, are our thoughts concerning God faithful to who he has revealed himself to be in and through his word? Are our thoughts concerning God faithful to who he has revealed himself to be in and through his word. We should desire, no, we should strive to have a theology that is true to God. But you know, there's a saying about an attention to theology and doctrine that I'm sure many of you have heard before. It's this, doctrine divides. I've heard this phrase used by evangelicals who argue that we should not pay close attention to doctrine because it is divisive in the body of believers. And I understand this concern where it comes from about division within the church. It's not ill-intentioned. It comes from a desire to have peace and unity in the church for the sake of witness. 
The church history is full of controversy and debate. It wasn't just ink that was spilled over doctrine. There was a lot of blood spilled over doctrine. So now among some evangelicals, there's a movement to do away with attention to doctrine and just reduce everything down to the lowest common denominator. Do I even need to tell you what's wrong with this sort of thinking? It falsely assumes that the divisions created by doctrine are a bad thing. It also falsely assumes that there can be true unity in the church without doctrine. What really happens is a false unity is established that lacks any sort of purity because in the absence of theological content, we begin to fill the holes. And the problem is, as St. Augustine correctly identified, there are only two loves, love of God and love of self. And we have a sinful bent toward the self. And so we begin to fill in the holes with ideas that exalt ourselves. And what we end up with is a form of self-glorifying idolatry where God gets made in our image. There's a reason why there was so much debate and angst in the church over doctrine throughout history. It's important to recognize, as they did, that we don't get God wrong. It's hard to live rightly without thinking rightly. Or put more simply, get God wrong, you get living wrong. Someone who says that doctrine doesn't matter is lazy at the point of doing the works, which is sometimes hard and tedious to come to a faithful understanding of who God is. But if you fail to do the work, you will almost certainly end up with a false view of God. And again, scripture reveals that God does not take lightly to having his name taken in vain, nor does he take lightly to the spreading of false doctrines within his church. Third, and finally, and again, not unrelated to the handling careful handling of Scripture and a careful attention to theology, we must be careful with our worship. We must be careful with our worship. A half century ago, A.W. Tozer spoke of worship, calling it the missing jewel among evangelicals. Unfortunately, in many evangelical churches, worship has become very dumbed down in the name of making the church experience relevant and seeker-friendly. The focus of worship has shifted from being faithful to God to being attractive to the world. And again, while the intent is good, the problem with this is that in an effort to get people into the church, God has been left out of the church. As though he doesn't really care about what we're offering him through our worship. Worship has become very superficial and narcissistic, catering to a consumeristic culture. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here. This isn't about style. It's not a matter of opinion about style. It's a matter of conviction. Jesus says that the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. As one Christian theologian and author notes, this means that worship should be word-centered, biblically regulated, scripturally established, Christ-focused, and Trinitarian. This theologian goes on to state, our superficial worship betrays us in the worst ways. God takes his name seriously, but we do not. Not if we think this is merely a matter of style. 
Although the Bible offers no revealed musical taste, there is a revealed name, and there is a necessary reverence and dignity attached to that name. There is danger attached to that name. We dare not slander God by taking his name in vain in our worship. And so as another author ponders, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The church are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. And before we let ourselves off the hook, uh, patting ourselves on the back for our worship here at Covenant, let me confess that there are times that I, as the pastor, enter the sanctuary far too casually, not fully cognizant of the fact that I stand here in the presence of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So let me ask you, how do you enter the sanctuary on Sunday morning? Do you come here humbly with reverence, in an eager expectation to be in the presence of a holy God? Do you come here bowing before him, seeking his face and his mercy, desiring to be transformed in his presence? Or do you roll out of bed, throw on some clothes, show up here half-heartedly, just hoping to sing some of your favorite hymns and hear a sermon that doesn't put you to sleep? Because, well, this is what we do on Sunday morning. Let me encourage you to prepare yourselves before you step foot in this place. What we do here is in no way casual because God deserves a sacrifice worthy of who he is. My prayer is that what is said and done in this place is not merely lip service in which God seems to be honored on our lips, but our hearts are rooted on earth, a pretended holiness. So let me encourage you to consider the posture of your heart in worship that God's name might be truly exalted as great among us. Therefore, dearly beloved, we must approach Almighty God in Scripture, in theology, and in worship with a deep and abiding sense of reverence and awe that is appropriate to the Holy One of Israel, that in our thoughts and meditations, in our words and in our actions, we would seek to exalt His name, to give Him the glory that He is due, and to make His name great among the nations. And we do so realizing that at times we will fail. But the good news is that God is faithful. He is faithful for the sake of his great name, even when we are not. We remember that even though Israel had failed him repeatedly and blatantly, God speaks to them through the prophet Ezekiel saying, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then God promises to cleanse them from their sin and to give them new hearts and a new spirit. And because his word never fails, he upholds this promise through Jesus Christ, who having lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly father, offered up his life as a substitutionary and atoning sacrifice for our sin. And now he bears the name that is above every name. 
And as the apostle Peter tells the Jewish council in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so all who call on his name and place their faith in him and are adopted as children of God by his Holy Spirit are made to share in his righteousness and have newness of life and peace with God. So even as we fail, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, in light of the amazing grace that we've been shown in Jesus Christ, let us strive all the more to work out our faith in fear and trembling and live in a manner worthy of this name that we have been given by grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that your name would be honored and revered among us, that your name would be exalted among us, that the nations might see and know that you are the one true living God, that you are the Holy One of Israel. So Lord, let us be faithful to you. Let us bear your name in a worthy manner. Because we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's now stand and affirm what we believe in response to the gospel using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God in things to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death. Christ is Lord to the glory